to sing that song because the whole book of First John is about that. So we can sing that every Sunday as far as I'm concerned. Um, we are in the second chapter, entering the second chapter of First John, if you'd like to go there. And you'll notice that I entitled this lesson, Why Christians Don't Sin. And I know what you're thinking. You're thinking, but they do. And that's true. And next week we're going to talk about that. <laughs> but as we look at First John, this opening verse, he actually says, I write this to you so that you will not sin. And there's a reason why Christians don't sin, and we'll, uh, we're going to examine that today. As we looked at the first chapter, uh, I talked about how these are some foundational scriptures, some foundational thoughts are being put in place. And I think he actually continues. I haven't decided exactly where these thoughts end, but his foundational thoughts, I think, go through about halfway through chapter two. But as he gives us our, our foundation here, and then he's going to expand on it and build on it as, as we go on, he's stating three purposes for writing this letter, why, I, why he wrote this. And I'm going to repeat this because I know some people are going to be here for the first time and some of you have short memories, and so you need to be reminded. But the first reason that he states why he's writing this is so that your what? Joy may be full. Your joy may be filled to overflowing. Then if we go to the end of the letter, chapter 5, verse 13, he states a second reason. and he, uh, The last reason, excuse me, his third reason. And that is so that you will know or be assured that you have eternal life. Assurance of your salvation. And the reason I think he states it at the end is because all through this, he's, he's giving you reasons. He's going to say it over and over. And so finally at the end, he just kind of summarizes it and says, I, I write this so that you'll know that you have eternal life. It's great encouragement, I think, as we read through these, this letter that fills us with joy, that assures us that we are secure in God's salvation. And now we come to the second reason. That John writes the letter. And he says here, chapter 2, I'm just going to read the first half of verse 1. My dear children, I write this to you so that you will not sin. Well, if you've been with me very long, I was teased last week that sometimes I'll stop at a word and preach on a word. And that's true. Because it's, the Bible's so full of good things. And I had to stop right here and just deal with this first sentence that he, he says here. My dear children, I write this so that you will not sin. Some think that John was about 90 years old when he wrote this letter. He may at that point, it made me think this, at that point in his life, he may have been the only person living that had actually walked, seen Jesus. We know he was the only apostle left, but he may have been the last person in the world to have ever been with Jesus. And it begins this chapter, what we call a chapter, is just his writing. He didn't have it in chapter and verses. With this statement, my dear children, and different translations will say different things. Most of them will say little children. The NIV here says dear children. And it's trying to bring out a meaning because the particular word is... It is a, a tender word um, that a father would call his, his children. 
And it's not just children, but it's my little children or my dear little children. There's a, a sense of tenderness here as he writes uh, his words, gentleness as he writes these words. And so I, I, I thought about myself. I'm not that old to some of you. <laughs> some of you I'm ancient. But as I age, I have learned or I, I have learned something about myself that it's easier for me to be impatient with others than patient. And you think, well, that, as a mature Christian, you should grow your patience. Well, that's, that is true, too. But I think our life experiences grant us some insights, not only in our minds, but in our emotions and our actual life experiences. And with these insights... We look at other people, we look at younger people than, than us, and we see them saying some things and doing things, and we know that's foolish, that's harmful. We see a bunch of young people full of Google knowledge. <laughs> they, can get the, I mean, they can get the knowledge in less time than you can get the words out. Fast on the draw, that little iPhone or whatever it is. And yet they have little practical experience. And so instead of with patience and gentleness, our response sometimes is harsh, blunt. We know that our time is short, so sometimes our patience is short. And it's just easier to, to be what we, what we like to say, honest and to the point. <laughs> And really we're not, well, we might be honest, we may be to the point, but we're being impatient and harsh and blunt sometimes. And if I spoke to you, believe me, I'm speaking to me first. Because that's my, that's my tendency as I get older. You just want to say, don't. <laughs> and if they could just obey you, just don't. And John does that here. But he, he doesn't, he's not, it's not with harshness, it's, it, it's, with, it's full of gentleness. He warns them, he instructs them, he guides them, he's pointing them to what is right, he's telling them what they must avoid. As you read through this letter, you'll see this over and over. He doesn't really mince words, but behind his instruction is this gentle term. Seven times in this letter he says, my dear little children, my little children, calls them his dear little children. And I can't read that without hearing the sense of tenderness and gentleness in his, in his tone as he writes. Proverbs twelve eighteen says this, Reckless words pierce like a sword, but the tongue of the wise brings healing. And I need to relearn that last part. The tongue of the wise brings healing. And we're talking about healing from sin here. People are involved in sin and I want to heal them. And so don't be reckless with my words. I need to be gentle with my words. And I notice he's moved from we write this to I write this. This is really getting personal here. Up to this point, he seems to be writing from the viewpoint of maybe the other apostles. He says, um, we have this, this which we have heard, we proclaim to you, we write this. This is the message we heard from him. And now it's almost like he's drawing them close around him and he... And he Pulls him close to him in his heart. 
And he says, I write this to you as my dear little children. And I write this so that you will not sin. That's the purpose. The little Greek word there actually states the purpose. So that you will not sin. Some people have a question regarding the this. So I write this so that you will not sin. What is he talking about? The this. What is the, the, the this? I guess it's hard to say. And I think he's referring to the previous chapter. And some people think he's referring to the whole, the, what he's going to, going to be writing. And actually it doesn't matter. It hardly matters at all. Because the following verses, chapter 2 onward, just reiterate, just repeat what he said in the first chapter. So it doesn't really matter. He's writing all this so that we will not sin. But there's something in that first chapter, something that, that he has just told us that will help us not to sin. We already saw how the, those opening verses filled you with joy. I, if you were here, if you listened, I won't speak for you, but I'll speak for me as I studied this and listened to it. It literally, as many of you know, kept me awake at night. So filled with joy, it's just over, it, just, it was just amazing as I began to see the implications of this and the applications to it. And, and then my inadequate way of sharing it with you. But boy, it just fills you with joy. And I could see how it would help me be assured of my salvation, but how does it help me not to sin? I want to pause here and give you a, a parenthetical point, all right? This is, I could... I could cross this out if I needed to. But I think it's important because these words are for Christians. Okay? These words are for Christians. And 90% of this audience, adult audience, are Christians. This is written to those who are living in Christ. These are written to those who have a relationship with Him. And the Bible says one thing to people who are in that relationship, in Christ, and another thing to those who are Outside of Christ. And here he's speaking to those inside of Christ. For those outside of Christ. For those who have not come to him in faith. If you're in this audience because you've been invited here and curious or whatever your reason. Made to come, whatever the reason is. And you're outside of a relationship with Christ. I can offer you no hope of encouragement. Outside of Him. I have nothing for you. Outside of Christ. There's nothing in the Bible that I can say. This is your hope. Your condition, and what was once my condition, is described in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1. 1 and 2. Let me, let me, it's going to be on the screen part of it, but let me go ahead and read it. It says, as for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins. This is how someone outside of a relationship is described by the Bible. Dead in transgressions and sins. In which you used to live. It's talking about me, how I used to live. When you followed the ways of this world. You followed the ways of the world. You followed the ruler of the kingdom of the air. The spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. He said, all of us. Also lived among them. We're not saying we weren't there. We were there. Gratifying the cravings of our sinful nature. Following its desires and thoughts. Just doing what I felt like doing is what he's saying. 
Like the rest, we were by nature objects of wrath. That's not a judgment on your character. But it's a biblical description of your condition. It's not my judgment. All judging is up to God. He will perfectly judge. Over in John chapter 8, this this black and white, the way John contrasts, he he quotes Jesus. And at one time in John chapter 8, verse 23, he says, he's talking to the Pharisees. He's talking to some religious people here, actually. And he says here, you are from below. I am from above. You are of this world. I am not of this world. I told you that you would die in your sins if you do not believe that I am the one I claim to be. And you will indeed die in your sins. That's pretty, that's pretty, that's not nice. (laughs) Jesus was not being nice there, was he? He was just stating, this is it. If you don't believe in me, you will die in your sins. I have a lot of people ask me questions about this. They'll, they'll say something like this when we lived in the islands. He says, what, well, what about the people that, who never had an opportunity? Uh, the Christian message did not come to the South Pacific, to the Fiji Islands, until 1830-something. Hundreds of years before that, as far as we can figure out, there were people living there. What about those people? Is it fair for God to judge those people? And my answer to that is, I leave them into the hands of a perfect God. He will, he's perfect in love, in grace. He's perfect in wrath, in righteousness. He will do the right thing. But don't use that as an excuse for you not to make a decision. You see, the Bible was not written to us to explain what God's going to do in special circumstances. We don't know. And I'm not going to complain if I get up to heaven and there's some people up there that I don't think should be there. <laughs> I mean, that's up to God, all right? That's perfectly up to Him. And He will judge righteously. The Bible is not written for us to explain all these what-if questions. The Bible is written to you to make a decision based on Jesus Christ. When I counsel, if you've ever been in counseling with me, you know this. You, you hold up your finger and you say... Where does this finger go? Right here. What do I do in this situation? I can't make her do anything. I can, only, I can only do something. And so here, the Bible is not saying, what about that person over there and that person, my great-grandmother? And It's right here. What do I do? And that's what the Scripture is talking about. And I think Christians get this all confused. There's a difference between those in Christ and those out of Christ in regard to sin. Our positions in regard to being out and in of Christ is this. Let's put it on the screen here. My position in regards to sin, outside of Christ, the Bible says you're lost. In Christ, you're saved. My attitude toward sin. Outside of Christ, seek it. Just follow the ways of the world. Christians, avoid it. What's my present condition in regard to sin? The Bible says, outside of Christ, you're just building up, you're just piling it on, building it up to the day of wrath. You're just piling it on. 
And in Christ, you're continually purified. It's just washed away. And Christians get that mixed up. Sometimes we'll, we'll apply scriptures about the lost in our lives and lead a life of guilt and fear. And there is a place for fear. There's a place for guilt. And the main place that is, is if you're outside of Christ, you should be afraid. You should feel guilty. But, you know, in Christ, boy, the Bible is amazing. Your sins are washed away. I told you before, the news is so good, you're not going to believe it. You're continually purified. It's washed away. You're cleansed. You're blameless before God. And we always say, yeah, but. We won't go down that road. I went down that road before. So in my parenthesis there. If you're outside of Christ, I want you to be encouraged because what we're going to look at is what you can have in prospect. All right? I hope it motivates you to say, yes, that's where I need to be, in Christ, not outside of Christ. <clears throat> but I've noticed now to the Christians, notice what, what John does not do. This is, this is a, an amazing thing. What he does not write, he says, I write this so that you will not sin and then I expect something. And he doesn't scold us. He doesn't scare us. He doesn't condemn us. He doesn't put us on a guilt trip. There's no hard-hitting statements about hell or wrath. In fact, immediately he takes his message and he makes it God-centered. We didn't read the second half of that verse. Let me just point it out quickly. He says in the second half of, of that verse, But if anyone does sin, we have one who speaks to the Father in our defense, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. He's the atoning sacrifice for our sin, not only for ours, but also for the sins of the whole world. I don't know how many weeks it's going to take me to go through there. I'm thinking one, but no promises. Amazing passage. And I think it's, the reason he does that is because it's so easy for us to flip things upside down so quickly and focus on myself. I write this so you will not sin. And what I really want to hear from him is the seven things I do in order not to sin. What, 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 just give me the formula, John. Tell me the things I don't do or do do. Just give me all the, what I need to do in order not to sin. And I want uh, some steps here. I want uh, an outline. And the emphasis is on me. What do I need to do? Tell me what to do. And later on, he's going to tell you some things that you do. And he's going to tell you some things you don't do. But he wants you to get this point. It's not about you. And I suspect when we get there, it's going to upset some of the best of us. Because it's not what we want to hear. <laughs> it's not really what we want to hear. We have something in our mind and John has something in his mind. But right now, he's really trying to make this point. He's trying to continue, actually continue this point. He says, you know, it's not all about you. It's not about what you do. It's not about what you don't do. It's about what God, who God is and what he's already done in Christ. That's what it's all about. If you don't want to sin, get your focus in the right place. Get it on God. Quit getting it on yourself. What do I need, I need to do to stop doing what I'm doing or to start doing what I need to do? Start looking at God, he says. Start focusing on Him. It's not about, as I said, what we do or don't do in order not to sin. It's about who we know. And that's a key word in John. Who you know. Know is used 30-something times, 37 times, I believe. Get a hold of this. Know this. And it will help you not to sin. You've got to know this. 
It's, it's growing and maturing. That's what he's talking about, growing and maturing. You know something? That's hard. We think, us who are older, do you remember when you were young and it was just the end of the world when you had to go to bed at 8 o'clock at night? Now we're like, well, I wish I could go to bed at 8 o'clock. You know, we just couldn't wait till we, I can't, did you ever make the mistake of telling your parents, I can't wait till I grow up and get out of here? And now you think back and say, you know, I had it pretty good. Never had to buy groceries. I never had to pay a utility bill. Oh, boy. I loved the days when I could just play and come home. Growing up is hard. And, and this is a really why I think this is, is difficult for us, because it's hard to grow up and mature. And that's what he's calling us to do. He's calling us to grow up. Grow up and be Christians here. Be, be like Christ. Rules and regulations, that's easy. Just give me a bunch of rules. Give me a bunch of regulations. Give me the laws. Just tell me what to do. Well, that's easy. And then we break them all. But growing up into Christ takes action. It takes thought. It takes responsibility. And that's what he's asking us to do. So he says, John says, I write this so that you will not sin. And the question I ask is, well, how? Tell me, tell me then. How, what do you mean by that? I think we get a little insight uh, and this, this is just my, my thought over the side. It may not even be right, but this is my thought. He uses this word, my little children, and it shows his tenderness. It shows his age over theirs. But I think he might also be implying something. He may be implying, don't think like little children. Don't think immaturely. An immature thought would be this, based on the first chapter. Since everyone sins, it's not a big deal. I mean, we read that. He says, you, you can't claim that you don't sin, that your nature isn't sinful, that you're not marred by sin, that you don't commit sins. Well, everyone does it. And so we're in the crowd. We just look around and get comfortable in the crowd. Everyone's a sinner. So is God going to just, you know, toss us all into hell? I mean, every, it's all of us. It's kind of this, this comfort in the crowd. You know, have you ever been in one of those crowds and everyone's doing it and you get caught up in the everyone's doing it type of thing and you feel secure when there's 10 or 15 of you soaping the coach's windows? Not that I ever did anything like that. Or, you know, you're the crowd, but, you know, by yourself. And so we get this idea, well, since everyone does it, it's not such a big deal. Or the second thing that we can come is, think of as a Christian is, well, since the blood of Jesus purifies, cleanses me continually, then why resist? Why put up a fight? Just, you know, continually cleanse. So just don't fight. Don't, don't resist. Just live my life and let him forgive me. It's not that big of a deal. I think what John may be saying here is think like that and you're being spiritually immature. If those are your thoughts, and we're all tempted there, I believe, that's, that's immaturity. Just like, what would you tell your child, or what do you tell your child, when they say, well, everyone's doing it? Do you say, oh, well, in the case, in that case, let's all do it together. No, you always say, this is what you always say. If everyone was jumping off a bridge, would you? <laughs> that was a mistake with me, because I'm like, well, it depends on the bridge. I let two or three go first, and if it looks good, I'll do it too. <laughs> that's not a good thing to say to me. <laughs> but, you know, that's, that's that thing. You know, everyone's doing it. 
All right? That's immature. And now, I wouldn't jump off the bridge because <laughs> I know what would happen. Secondly, walk in the light, as we've been talking about, really exposes how terrible sin is. This is something you've got to grasp. This is something you have to think about. This is something you have to grow in maturity here. As we walk in the light of God and we learn what that means, walking in the light of God, it helps me to see how horrid every sin in my life is. As I grow, I see damage in things where I never saw damage before. Those little sins. Those little sins in my life that really didn't matter. I see, the, I see what happens. There are no benign sins. Every sin damages. Every sin destroys. Some sins are worse in their immediate context, uh, consequence, I mean. Jesus actually told Pilate the greater sin is what the Pharisees were doing, the leaders were doing. So there is a greater sin and a lesser sin. But the consequences, even though they may change, there are no misdemeanor sins. It's true, I'd rather you be angry at me than hit me. All right? But they're both sins. And they both have damaging consequences. It's like this. If you say, if you take a gallon of water that I'm going to take with me and, you know, while I'm, when I'm on my kayak, you know, and you put one drop of poison in it, just one drop, and you say, this probably won't even make you sick. You think I'm going to take that with me? Just one drop of poison. And so, all the little sins, little sins, jealousy, Anger, covetousness, envy, lustful thoughts, all the sins we can hide, all the sins that we think aren't harmful, when they're brought in the clear light of God, He exposes them what they truly are. This is part of that growing in the grace and knowledge of God. We begin to see how terrible sin is. They're destructive. Third, it robs you of joy. If you sin, it robs you of joy. Sin never brings joy. Sin will bring happiness. It'll bring temporary happiness. No doubt about that. But I've noticed a jealous person is never a happy person. Is never a joyful person. Spiteful. I guess you can be spiteful in a time. But when a person is being spiteful, they can't smile. Have you noticed that? You can't smile and be... Or it's such a fake smile, you can, you can tell it. You can't truly smile and be spiteful. Anger only leads to rage. Pleasures of sin, the Bible says, are short-lived. They're temporary. They're short-lived. There's pleasure there, yeah. It's, there's some happiness there, yes. You can feel good for a short amount of time. But there's no lasting joy. A Christ-like life brings joy. It's lasting. It's filled to the full. just overflowing with joy. In the midst of pain and suffering and bad things happening to you, a Christian can still be joyful if they, if, if they haven't been robbed, if their sin, if sin has not robbed them of that joy. Fourth, sin is inconsistent with your confession. We talked about the, our confession last week. We confess and acknowledge with God that sin hurts, that sin defiles, that sin separates, sin destroys, and more. It's inconsistent to pursue it. We'll suffer emotionally, we'll suffer physically, suffer mentally, suffer spiritually when in that torn state. And so it's inconsistent with what we've just said. God, you are right. Sin is a terrible thing. And then we pursue it. 
It's inconsistent. Fifth, it weakens faith. Sin weakens faith. It will cause you to doubt. You'll doubt your salvation. You'll doubt God's love for you. You'll doubt his forgiveness. The more you indulge in sin, the more you're there, the more you're participating in, the more you'll doubt. Doubt leads to a weaker faith. can lead to no faith. And that's the danger when you get into the no faith area. With weak faith, your prayers are hindered. Your fellowship falters. One of the first signs. I've, I've been... What, how, how to say this, culturally saying this, full-time ministry for 36 years. And one of the first things that you notice with someone whose faith is weakened because of sin is they start missing the, fellow, the, the public fellowships with Christians. I just count on it. I've heard all the excuses. I've talked to the people. There's always something, but you don't understand and what I've found, I've never, I don't think I've ever found an exception, except if someone goes to jail. As a Christian, they can grow in their faith there. But you separate yourself, it's because of some sin in your life. Some sin is keeping you away. And so your fellowship falters. Peter warned husbands, he said, you don't treat your wife's right. This is my paraphrase of chapter 3, verse 7. Don't treat your wife's right. Your prayers will be hindered. It's hard to mistreat people and pray. It's hard to be ugly to people. And pray. I mean, the only prayer you have left there is, Oh, Lord, forgive me for being such an awful person. That's the only prayer. You can't pray. Not really pray. You might be able to say some words, but that's all you can do. And so sin weakens faith. Six, it leads to self-condemnation. God declares you righteous, and then you get involved in unrighteous acts. The only way you can keep that up is if you harden your heart. You can only harden your heart, or what the Bible says, I think King James, quench the spirit. I always like that, quench the spirit. Put out the spirit's fire. You've got to subdue the spirit in your life. In order to continue in that sin. And so it leads to the self-condemnation. You become ineffectual. You just can't live right. You're self-condemned. That, that self-condemned life is weak, is impotent. You just can't do anything anymore the more you're involved in it. And God's Word becomes meaningless to you. How many times have I read this passage to someone who is struggling, who is a Christian? I, says, I say, you know, the Bible says, and I'll turn in Romans and says, There is now... No condemnation to those in Christ Jesus. And lose meaning. It loses meaning to a self-condemned person. This person is in Christ, but they're so self-condemned that they can't believe that what God said is true. Self-condemned. That's what sin will do to you. To... Apply this, it takes thought, it takes action, it takes depending on God for strength. The worldly approach is this. I, if I can just make you feel bad enough for what you've done, you'll stop. That's true. That's what a whipping is. Remember, did any of y'all get whippings growing up? Do they do that anymore? <laughs> yeah. Whippings make you stop doing things. But not in my heart. You ever do that? You ever get a whipping and you still want to do what you were getting a whipping on? Yeah. 
heart doesn't change. Hopefully we mature and our hearts change. And that's the point. God says God's way is maturity, growing up. He, he doesn't want you to be immature. He wants you to grow up in Him. So as we grow up in Him, as we think about these things and make the application, I don't want to be like this. Why would a Christian in his right mind do anything that's immature, dangerous, terrible, robs them of their joy, inconsistent with who they are, weakens their faith, gives you doubts, hurts others, hinders your prayer, hinders your fellowship with both Christians and God, leads to self-condemnation, causes you to be ineffective, causes you to be weak. Why would a Christian even do those things? Because you're insane. Really, sin is insanity. Temporary, hopefully, but sin is insanity. When we sit down and think about it, and we think, why in the world did I do that? It, it, it's insane. When we understand, when we start thinking all these things that, that, that sin has ripped my relationships apart, it's separated me from people, have hurt people, it's making me ineffective. My, I can't say, do this, don't do this, when people say, yeah, but you, I mean, we're ineffective. That's absolutely insanity. John says to us, don't do it. I am writing this to you so that you will not sin. And the stress of the verb here is, I'm writing this so that you will not sin even one time. I don't want you to sin a single sin, is what he is saying. John knows that you and I will be saved from a world of hurt if we learn how not to sin. Two quick applications. The first way is remember who you are. A key here is knowing. All through this book, as I said, the word know is over and over. Actually knowing that God is not far away, but he's actually living in you, gives you the ability to refuse sin. You say, well, how, how does that prevent me? A man was in counseling. <clears throat> And he had a problem with his anger. And he's telling the counselor about it. He gets so angry that he will st- take furniture and he starts throwing it up against the wall. And he's even thrown it through the window, broken things. And he says, you know, I just can't help myself. I just get so angry. I just grab this stuff. I just start going crazy. The counselor says, hmm, you ever get upset at work? Yeah, I do. Well, what does the boss do when you start throwing furniture? He said, oh, I would never throw furniture there. I'd get fired. He says, well, you see, it's not that you can't control this. It's that you won't in certain places. You see, at home, you feel comfortable enough just to go crazy and do whatever you want to do. But at work, when people are looking at you and your job's online, you can control yourself. That means you can. And I'm thinking to myself, you know, when I sin, what am I normally doing? I'm normally putting God somewhere else. And I don't think about it. It just automatically happens. God is now in heaven, very busy with the ISIS situation. I don't know. He's up there with important things as I'm getting angry at you. You know, if I'm driving down the road and I'm about to get angry at Julia or impatient or something, if I really knew that right there in the back seat or maybe sitting between Julia and I was Jesus. How do you think I would control myself? 
Well, I think I'd have pretty good control, don't you? <laughs> I don't, even put, don't even put Jesus there. Put one of the elders there <laughs> sitting with you. That you'd be a little more self-controlled. You see, we can do it. If we really believe that God is with us, actually with us in that temptation, then many of those outbursts, many of those thoughts, many of the actions would be stopped before they started. And our problem isn't that we can't help it. Our problem is we choose to live as if God is not there. And that's why we sin. It's a very quick decision. We don't ponder on it, but that's how we live our lives. Second application for today, the wisdom of kindness. In the face of sin and its horrors, we react to it harshly. And there is a time and a place for hard confrontation, but it takes wisdom to know when that time is. And it even takes a greater wisdom to do it with a gentle spirit in the midst of evil. In the midst of evil. Our goal isn't so much to point out sin in a person's life, but help a person in sin to come out of that sin. Paul, in one of his hardest and harshest letters, Galatians, Read Galatians in a modern translation. He is so blunt and hard and harsh, we could even say at times. Right at the end, he says this. Chapter 6, verse 1. If someone is caught in a sin, you who are spiritual, and guess what? If you're a Christian, you're spiritual. All right? He's not talking about the super spiritual. He's talking about Christians. You who are spiritual should restore him gently. Restore him gently. At the end of that letter, when, when Paul is, these people are about to actually walk away from their faith. This is how dangerous, this is a dangerous situation they're in. They're substituting something instead of Christ's atoning sacrifice for their salvation. This is so terrible that it's going to separate them from their faith. And he, he's blunt about it. And he says... If you see someone in a sin, you restore them, but do it gently. I believe that takes great wisdom. We can live totally forgiven lives, and yet we can pay a dear consequence for our sins. There's, there's consequences to sin, okay? There really is. You can be a forgiven sinner and still have to pay consequence in this life. And so John says, oh, my dear children, I write this. So you will not sin. I got a text, long text last week from someone I love. And I thought it would sum up this very well. Let's read it together. He says, I find it interesting that in 1 Corinthians 13, Paul states three, that three important things remain. Faith, hope, and love. Faith being the basic foundation and love being the greatest of them all. In 2 Peter, he states how we grow spiritually. First, there is faith, which develops into goodness, and then goodness into knowledge. This knowledge teaches us why we should be self-controlled, and this is where I get stuck. Most of the time, I have self-control over most of my sins, and then the world says, you deserve to treat yourself and relax from all that self-control. <laughs> Isn't that true? So I do, and then I remember why I should have had self-control in the first place. Interestingly, Peter follows self-control with perseverance. 
This is a long-term practice of that self-control I was speaking of. If we can get this far and persevere, then he says we can know godliness and then mutual affection and then finally love. He says that if we continue to increase in all these, that we will be effective and productive in our knowledge of Jesus, which is exactly what I want to be. The most powerful part of it is what he says next. If we lack these things, then we have forgotten that he has washed all our sins away. That is profound. If I choose to willfully ignore these things, then I'm choosing to ignore the most powerful thing that has ever been done. Jesus dying for us. My prayer this week is to persevere so that I can know love and be able to share the washing of my sins with everyone around us. And that's why we do not sin. If you're outside of Christ, I talked to you a few minutes ago. All these blessings are in Christ. Boy, salvation, purification, continued purification. It's a wonderful place to be. If your faith is sufficient for you to make a statement to the church, to come forward, talk to the elders, to be immersed as we had two last week, your sins are washed away. I mean washed away. It's a great opportunity. The rest of us, I encourage us to go out this week concentrating on what God has done for us. And do not sin. If we can help any of you, come as we stand.